Welcome to the 50th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is also a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits are donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, what we're seeing is improvement in the numbers with cases down by 20% and deaths decreased by 15%. However, there are still 51,000 people hospitalized for COVID-19 and 70,000 new cases and 1,400 deaths per day. That means that there will be as many deaths this month as we see in an entire flu season from the influenza virus. To date in the United States, there have now been close to 750,000 deaths and worldwide, the number of people who have died currently exceeds 5 million. The countries with the greatest number of deaths after the US are Brazil, India, and Mexico. As of last Friday, 223 million Americans or 67% of the population had received at least one vaccine dose, and 193 million people, or 58% of the population, were fully vaccinated. Both numbers are good compared to the start of the year, but far from the 90% that will be needed for herd immunity. So far, almost 16 million people have received a booster. The biggest news this week was President Biden's announcement that the vaccine requirements for all companies with over 100 employees would formally begin January the 4th. That's a few weeks after the initial deadline, but reasonable given the upcoming holidays, assuming of course that it sticks and that the federal appeals court that is looking at the constitutionality doesn't delay implementation further. At least so far, the courts have sided with companies and local laws requiring vaccination in recognition of the lives that would be saved if everyone were vaccinated. Employees will either have to show proof of vaccination or take weekly COVID tests, and they'll need to wear a mask at work if they're not vaccinated. For hospital workers, the testing option won't be a choice. Employers will need to provide paid time to employees when they're scheduled to receive the vaccine. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA, will enforce these mandates, and the companies face large fines if they're in violation. However, at least so far, there doesn't appear to be a method in place to adequately monitor compliance. They're gonna monitor it predominantly through coworker complaints and a relatively small number of OSHA employees. And together it's unlikely to provide the type of strict oversight that mandatory vaccination demands. There are a number of concerns in addition that public health officials have about the near future. First, with winter coming, people will be gathering indoors. There'll be large 
holiday celebrations. And both of these could lead to a reversal of the improving numbers. Already Europe is seeing a large spike in cases, estimated to be an increase of 55%, despite the continent having a vaccination rate that matches and in many nations exceeds that in the United States today. Potentially offsetting, of course, these threats was the approval of the FDA and CDC of the Pfizer vaccine for children ages five to 12. As we said in previous podcasts, the dose will be one third the adult dose. And by having a vaccinated younger population, transmission should decline. Rabbi, a fully vaccinated listener wanted to know how important getting a booster was, given that there was some debate about approving it for people under the age of 65. Recent research indicates that getting vaccinated for people who meet the CDC criteria is very important in the context of the Delta variant. A recent study of 800,000 veterans that was published in the highly respected journal Science demonstrated that the effectiveness of all three currently approved vaccines declined significantly over the past six months since this Delta strain became dominant. The Moderna vaccine, which began at 89% in March, dropped to an efficacy of 58% by September. Pfizer went from 87% to 45% over the same time period. And Johnson & Johnson's vaccine dropped from 86% to just 13%. Of course, compared to unvaccinated individuals, these vaccines all provided major protection with the people who received the Moderna vaccine having a 76% lower likelihood of dying than unvaccinated individuals, Pfizer a 70% lower chance of dying, and even the J&J vaccine had a 52% lower rate of dying. And all of that is prior to the administration of boosters. But these numbers, as we said, are significantly lower than we saw at the start of the year. The drop in effectiveness was greatest for people over the age of 65, which is why they're the cohort being most encouraged to get the vaccine and the booster. And the decrease in effectiveness was significantly less for young individuals, but still yielding excellent protection. Robbie, quite a number of listeners requested more information about the pill manufactured by Merck that is now licensed in Great Britain. What's the story? The pill is authorized for adults 18 and older who test positive for COVID-19 and have at least one major risk factor, such as obesity or heart disease. They would take four pills twice a day for five days. And as you mentioned, Britain is the first nation to approve the drug, or for that matter, any viral medication that can be taken at home. This drug and others that will be coming to the market could serve as an important adjunct for people whose immune systems may not have generated sufficient antibodies after vaccination or whose resistance may have waned, but it is not a substitute for vaccination itself. And the reason is several. The first is that the vaccine, once you've had it, protects you whereas the pill needs to be taken. And that requires finding it or finding out that you have the disease early in the process. And that requires that you get tested 
And the likelihood is that the majority of individuals who might have benefited are not likely to do so, whereas once individuals have been vaccinated, they will be protected, possibly needing a booster eight to 12 months later, but at least across that entire time period, minimizing the risk of transmission and reducing by 90% the chance of severe disease, hospitalization, and death. The drug manufactured by Merck is currently pending review by the FDA in the United States. And the data out of the company says that for those individuals who take it, and remember, these are individuals at higher risk, the chances of dying are cut in half. The drug targets an enzyme that's needed for coronavirus replication. Of interest, Merck has authorized the drug to be manufactured in India as well as in the United States, with the Indian version being sold to poor nations around the world. This approach would offset the criticism U.S. vaccine manufacturers have received for selling their medications only to wealthier nations, the ones that pay more per dose. The expectation is that the five-day course of treatment would cost about $700 in the United States, but only $18 elsewhere. The U.S. government has already agreed to pay $1.2 billion for 1.7 million courses of treatment, either in parallel or maybe in response to Merck's success, Pfizer on Friday announced that its oral antiviral drug was 89% effective in reducing severe disease in its phase two and early phase three trials. This drug also blocks the enzyme the coronavirus uses to make copies of itself. According to the company, in their clinical trials, there were 10 patients who died from COVID who received the placebo, but none died who received the medication itself. To date, however, the available information that we have only comes through Pfizer's press release rather than publication in a peer-reviewed journal. The company plans to submit its data to the FDA for emergency use authorization in the near future. Ravi, if the Merck and Pfizer oral antiviral treatments are as effective and safe as advertised, uh, does it impact your thinking on the need for vaccine mandates as well as vaccinating young children? Uh, do you think those therapeutics will and or should impact Biden's vaccine mandate? I mean, if the, if the therapeutics are as effective as advertised, do we really need this highly divisive vaccine mandate? Jeremy, I am a scientist, and I'm going to give you a scientific answer, and that is yes. If we vaccinate everyone, every American will have protection. If we don't vaccinate everyone, then it'll be relatively spotty with people, as I said, having to develop symptoms, then needing a test to be separated from whether the same symptoms came from influenza, then recognizing the fact that they need to have the more sophisticated test to be able to be assured of that, but they have to get the drug within three days. This is not just like taking an aspirin in your bathroom when you have the first signs of a cold. This is a process that would have to be gone through. And we would see more cases, more death, more transmission. This should not be a divisive issue. The vaccines are highly effective. They reduce your chances of severe disease and dying by 90%. If everyone is vaccinated, 
our country can move forward and put this pandemic behind us. My belief is that politics can't dominate over science. And as you've noted, occasionally it does and continues to do so in spite of the growing evidence that vaccination is the way to get our nation most effectively and most quickly past this pandemic, both for reasons of education, both for reasons of economics, and certainly to maximize the number of lives that we save. I mean, as parents struggle with deciding whether or not to vaccinate their children, what's the current data on the psychological impact the pandemic has had? Jeremy, as you might assume, the number of kids battling mental health issues has soared. And there's growing concern among psychologists that many won't bounce back anytime soon. Even before the pandemic, we saw the mental health of children being problematic, with one in five experiencing anxiety or depression or another mental health condition in a given year. And the suicide rate for people 10 to 24 was rising. But as bad as it was before, in the first half of 2021, there was a 45% spike in the number of kids who intentionally injured themselves or attempted suicide compared to 2019, the year before COVID-19 came ashore. Besides having to miss in-person schooling, often having to be isolated from friends, we need to remember that 140,000 children lost a parent or other caregiver from COVID-19. And that's based upon the data from the National Institute of Health. And 65% of them were children of color. Jeremy, this is our 50th episode of Coronavirus The Truth. It's a milestone we never imagined we'd reach. When we started, we expected to record maybe 20 episodes. But surprisingly, the amount of information and listener interest is as robust now as a year ago. If you knew in March of 2020, when we began this podcast, that there would be a two to three year journey our nation would go on rather than six months, is there anything you would have done differently for yourself or for your son? Robbie, I think if I could go back and do anything differently, it would have been to give myself uh, a reality and mental health check at the beginning of the virus. Uh, I had seen the videos that were coming out of China and then Italy, and I was terrified. I was worried about leaving the house for a while, um, even to get groceries. I would sanitize them with bleach wipes when I got home. I was worried about having loved ones pass away from the virus. I was worried about my business going under if my clients cut costs or could no longer afford to do business with us. Uh, I think of my employees almost like a second family, and I was worried about having to lay them off. Uh, my business unexpectedly grew during the pandemic, and I was terrified to hire people for the longest time because of the economic conditions. I tried to do it all myself, working over 80 hours a week to the point of burning myself out. Uh, I was going to do everything I could to keep my team happy and employed, um, and I got very burned out in the process. I didn't sleep as much as I should. I was constantly worried and feeling down. Uh, it was very difficult to, to crawl out of that hole. Uh, and I had many friends that were small business owners like myself who were not so lucky and had their businesses go under through no fault of their own. And, and my heart still aches for them. Uh, if I could go back in time, though, I would have told myself that there is indeed a light at the end of the tunnel. And I would have spent more time outside, gotten more exercise, and I would have done my best to kind of prevent myself from getting into that dark place mentally that I think a lot of Americans went into. Robbie, a listener who recovered from a COVID-19 infection wondered how important it is to be vaccinated in addition. She's worried about a reaction to the shot. 
Jeremy, it has been recommended for several months now that people who have recovered from COVID-19 be vaccinated. The data is very strong to support that recommendation. A new study from the CDC has shown that individuals who recovered from an infection were five times as likely to be reinfected than individuals who were vaccinated after an infection. It seems like the two-dose vaccine generates a much stronger and longer-lasting immunity than just being infected, and it protects recipients better than relying on the immunity that comes after having the disease. My sense from the data is that the more exposures a person has, either to the virus or the vaccine, the better, the stronger, and the longer the immunity lasts. In terms of reaction, there's no data to show that people experience any worse reactions after having had COVID-19 followed by vaccination than simply being vaccinated after previous vaccination. The evidence is growing to support the view that without question, vaccines work very well at preventing severe disease, but that the immunity generated declines over time. As we just discussed, the disease also generates immunity, but the level is less than after the two doses of the vaccine itself. And the decline in protection that impacts everyone is particularly problematic in people over the age of 65. Well, this reflects a lower initial antibody response, a more rapid decline in immunity, or is a result of the associated chronic illnesses that old, older individuals often have, we don't yet know for certain. An area of ongoing research is focused not on the level of blood antibodies that spike either after disease or vaccine, but the memory B cells that are the key to longer-term protection. And here it's possible that the disease itself could be more protective than the vaccine. But regardless, the immunity generated by the combination of viral exposure plus vaccination is much higher than that generated by the disease itself. I mean, I've heard people say that the current pandemic will become endemic. What do they mean? Jeremy, there are three related terms that public health officials use. The first pair are epidemic and pandemic. Both involve rapid increases in the number of cases of a particular disease, as we saw in COVID-19. The difference has to do with whether there's global spread. Pandemic is a rapid rise in cases across multiple nations and wide areas of the globe. This is why we label coronavirus a pandemic. An epidemic would happen locally as a major disease outbreak in a single or limited number of nations. When we contrast pandemic versus endemic, the, dis the difference isn't about geography, but the rate of transmission. In a pandemic, transmission is rapid and growth is exponential. It's again what we saw in COVID-19 in a variety of places, including the US and more recently in India. When a disease is endemic, these big spikes don't occur, but the threat persists across time rather than the infectious agent disappearing. As such, the risk of an epidemic occurring is always present whether from a change in the weather, a large gathering, a viral mutation, because the virus or the bacteria, if it's a different type of endemic infectious disease, is lurking within the population. 
The reason this word is being used with greater frequency about COVID is that the original hope that we'd reach herd immunity and the virus would completely disappear is becoming increasingly less likely. The reasons are multiple. The first is that given vaccine hesitancy and the increased transmissibility of the Delta variant, the United States is very unlikely to reach the 90% plus level needed for the virus to recede and disappear on its own. And it would do so because there would not be enough vulnerable individuals. But as I said, with less than 90% vaccination rates, there would be enough people to keep the virus in circulation. The second reason is the growing number of breakout cases among vaccinated people. This too would make the virus able to continue to be transmitted even if we were able to achieve the 90% vaccination rate. As long as there are enough people who have COVID, the virus will continue to replicate, it will spread, and it will stay in existence. And that, of course, poses the continued risk of a mutation with the possibility that an endemic COVID-19 virus could then produce a mutated form in an epidemic fashion, large cases, exponential growth, and reinfection of the previously immune population. A study from the Imperial College in London confirmed frequent transmission of the Delta variant from vaccinated individuals to others in the household. The spread was more likely to go from a vaccinated person to an unvaccinated person, but it also could go to a second person who was vaccinated. Phrased differently, rather than this coronavirus becoming a distant memory as we had hoped, and many actually predicted six months ago, it's most likely that we'll be with us for the foreseeable future. And assuming that happens, annual boosters probably will be recommended, similar to the annual flu shot. Although when it comes to COVID, the reason is different than for influenza. For the flu, the reason we need a yearly shot is the changing genetic makeup associated with this particular type of virus. And often, in fact, in most years, last year's shot does not match this year's strain. In contrast, in the case of the coronavirus, it would be the falling immunity that people have despite previous disease or vaccination. If you think about how flying has changed in the post 9-11 era, in many ways what we're saying is similar. The risk today of a terrorist attack is significantly less than it was previously, but it's still present. As a result, we will never go back to the old airport normal of people just walking to the gates. And similarly, COVID-19 is likely to impact our lives for decades, although far less intensely than at the height of the crisis. When terrorism flares, airports may need to impose stringent restrictions. And when COVID-19 flares, in whatever new form it may take, particularly in local communities, masks, social distancing, and other restrictions will also return. Robbie, how has the pandemic impacted people from different socioeconomic groups? Jeremy, every time researchers look at data, individuals from lower socioeconomic groups face the greatest hardship 
and the greatest loss of life. In a study from the CDC, researchers found that what is called dual eligible individuals, these are people who are covered both by Medicare and Medicaid. These individuals were two and a half times more at risk of needing hospitalization and dying than people who were covered solely by Medicare. Phrased differently, that portion of the Medicare population who is facing more challenging economic times, they have a two and a half times greater chance of needing hospitalization and dying than the rest of the Medicare population. And the biggest difference between the two groups was income. Just for completeness, other groups at risk, at high risk of severe disease and death, were the Medicare enrollees with kidney failure, and who were then on dialysis as a consequence, and those individuals who had kidney failure, but now had a kidney transplant, but had to take immunosuppressive medications to avoid organ rejection. Rabbi, we talked a lot in the past about the various financial incentives that were offered to people to be vaccinated. How did they work out? Jeremy, as you know, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And almost always when I present a leadership dilemma, the class comes up with a variety of financial incentives or economic penalties as the best way to motivate people. I often point out how wrong this type of thinking can be, and this case is no exception. According to an article in the Wall Street Journal, financial payments to people who were hesitant to be vaccinated actually decreased the number of individuals who went ahead. The thinking is that people assumed that there must be a big risk for this vaccine if elected officials are going to pay them to roll up their sleeves, and they therefore decided not to go ahead. Data from the state lottery drawing with people being given tickets for multi-million dollar prizes showed minimal impact on vaccinations as well. In an article I will be publishing in Forbes next Monday, I'll be describing a different approach based on psychological research about motivation and including successful case studies that don't include financial rewards, and I believe could be a better and more rapid path to reaching the levels of vaccination that our nation needs to be able to quickly move back towards a more normal society with normal social distancing. Robbie, our good news segment is one that is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Jeremy, one piece of good news is the opening of the world to global travel that started today. We talked in the last episode that the U.S. had dropped many of our restrictions for tourism for vaccinated individuals. And now some of the last holdouts, including both Australia and Thailand, have done the same. And New Zealand, the most cautious nation, isn't far behind. These countries have had some of the lowest number of COVID cases. New Zealand has reported only 6,600 cases among its 5 million citizens. And Australia, 172,000 cases amongst its 26 million people. Phrased differently, the US every 10 to 12 days has as many cases per 100,000 people as these countries have had over the entire 600 days that we've been experiencing COVID-19. 
Overall, global travel has decreased by 80%, with a 95% reduction in tourism going to the Pacific area. What we're seeing now are countries accepting the need to live with the virus, given their desire to stop inflicting continued economic damage on its people. Interestingly, the one nation that remains committed to eliminating the virus is China, the country where COVID-19 first began. As an example of their intense focus, there was one visitor to Shanghai Disneyland who was found to be infected. The country not only shut down the amusement park, but 34,000 visitors who were there that day were quarantined and required to be tested for COVID-19. This is the type of action that it takes if the goal is viral elimination. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's this week's big healthcare story? Jeremy, there are two big stories. First, although the death toll from COVID-19 has been horrific, the number of deaths from other medical causes remains even higher. And for some specific diseases, the tragedy is double since many of these deaths can be avoided. One cancer that can be prevented in a huge number of cases is colon cancer. Researchers have demonstrated that there's a 10-year transition from a benign colonic polyp to an invasive carcinoma. Find the abnormality early and remove it, and a huge number of deaths are avoided. That doesn't take colonoscopy to identify the problem. A fit test can be done once a year in the privacy and comfort of a bathroom without the need for the person to have the bowel prep that many people find quite uncomfortable. That's why when someone isn't screened and dies, it's doubly tragic because it could be easily prevented five minutes each year for individuals in the appropriate age group. And for that reason, the newest data from the Journal of the National Cancer Institute is important. Researchers found that young adults with colon cancer are just as likely to die as older people. And colorectal cancer is one of the fastest growing cancers in individuals under the age of 50, for reasons, by the way, that scientists don't yet understand. Earlier this year, the US Preventive Task Force lowered the recommended screening age from 50 down to 45. You know, Jeremy, there are so many cancers for which there's little physicians can do to diagnose and treat them early. But when we identify an opportunity like this, we need to be aggressive in our efforts, and the payoff will be the saving of lives. Another important news story was the proposed $1.75 trillion package that President Biden is hoping to get through Congress, a major portion of which would impact health care. Tentatively, the package would be the ability of people living in states that didn't expand Medicaid to obtain coverage through the exchanges. In addition, there'd be expansion for people in Medicaid so that they'd be able to obtain hearing aids. And finally, the proposal includes some small steps by which the federal government could negotiate lower drug prices for Americans. It's unclear how much of this package will survive a vote in the House and in the Senate. At this point, the hope for 
big expansion of Medicare and the more robust approach to negotiating lower drug prices, neither of them will happen. Jeremy, our next two guests on Fixing Healthcare will be George Halverson, the former CEO of Kaiser Health Plan, speaking about the role insurers can have in lowering medical costs and in raising quality, and Vinod Kosla, one of the nation's leading venture capitalists on the role that technology can play. You and I have already recorded both shows, so you know what they're going to say. As a preview, can you tell listeners some insights you've garnered and why they need to tune in to both programs once they're on the air? Rob, talking to these two has given me a lot of hope about the future of American healthcare. Uh, as someone who grew up in rural America, I know many rural Americans feel forgotten when it comes to improving their access to and quality of health care. Uh, George shared some amazing thoughts on addressing the social determinants of health in both poor minority communities as well as rural ones. He talked about the power of capitated health plans as a way to focus on preventative health for patients. Uh, when it came to our discussion with Vinod, he discussed the power of AI in healthcare, how 80% of what doctors do could be accomplished through technology, how technology could help identify and overcome racial and economic disparities in medicine, as well as how future technologies could transform rural access to good healthcare. I know it's easy to often I know it's often easy to look at healthcare in America and its rising costs and not feel any hope. Um, when we get the opportunity to talk to brilliant forward-thinking experts like George and Vinod, it's actually difficult not to think that if their thoughts and recommendations are followed, American healthcare has a very bright future. Robbie, a listener wanted to know, if you had a six-year-old child, would you rush out and vaccinate him? Jeremy, this is one of the hardest questions for me to answer because it combines both science and emotion. Favoring early vaccination are two sets of data. First, unlike in the early days of the pandemic, kids now comprise 16.5% of cases. They've experienced 6 million infections and 700 have died. Second, there's an increasing number of stories about long COVID with neurologic problems in this younger age group. And finally, whatever our fears might be about the vaccine, most likely the same complications will follow infection and be more common. On the other hand though, the vaccine's only been tested on a relatively small number of kids, and the likelihood of children under the age of 12 dying remains very small. In balancing these pros and cons, both the FDA and CDC have recommended vaccinating all kids in this five to 12 age group, along with those 12 to 18 who had been previously approved. Having said that, you asked me what I personally would do as a parent, and that involves emotion. My approach would be dependent on my degree of risk tolerance. If I were very fearful of my child contracting COVID and dying, and if I was currently restricting my child's social interactions for that reason, I'd try to move to the front of the vaccination line. In contrast, if I were relatively blase about the dangers, I'd probably be in no rush. If I had to guess where I would be, I suspect I'd be in the middle. I might wait a few months for more data to become available on how the vaccine is being tolerated. And then when the information was as positive as I predicted it will be, I would have no reason not to move forward. And I would do so knowing that the problems in this cohort were extremely low 
similar to what exists today on the data we have in those who are 12 to 18. As a scientist, I'd recommend that everyone follow the FDA and CDC guidelines, but as a parent, I recognize how hard it can be to keep the emotional component at bay. When we look at vaccination in this younger age group, there's currently a 50-50 split where parents say they plan to do, with 30% of parents reporting that they'd be not willing. Currently in this younger age group, there's a 50-50 split where parents say they plan to do relative to vaccinating their younger children. And 30% of parents say they'll definitely not sign them up. I suspect that over time, parents who are vaccinated will vaccinate their kids, and parents who aren't vaccinated won't. My view is that the sooner as a nation we can return to a near normal life, the better it will be for both parents and kids. And one of the most important places for us to start is our schools. And when it comes to in-person learning, vaccination is the most important step we can take. So hopefully in the near future, everyone will move forward, vaccinating not just themselves, but vaccinating their children and allowing our country to go back as close as possible to where we were two years ago, both on the educational and in the medical, as well as in the economic spheres of our society. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn.